Just a sign of how old we're getting. You get, people get an opportunity to stand up and stretch their legs, but no, I'm going to sit here and just relax. Uh, or you're just so anticipating the Word of God this morning, you didn't want to move out, move out of your seat. Okay, back to your seats. Let's have a word of prayer. Lord, we come to you now with great thankfulness for what we've already been considering through song as well as through our time of remembrance. You are so good to us. Your grace is amazing. Thank you for the Lord Jesus and his sacrifice so that he could bring people to God. And through his suffering and death and resurrection, he could provide forgiveness of sins and bring people into eternal relationship with you. Thank you for your word that makes this so clear to us as well in this particular portion of your word that we've been studying in the book of Romans. Thank you for the clarity that it has about how to have a right relationship with you. We're thankful for it. And so we pray as we open it again and go into it that you'd be our teacher, Holy Spirit, and that you would implant the word of God into our heart, into our souls, into our thinking, and that it might change us so that we, we glorify you glorify you more. So, we ask this all in Christ's great name. Amen. So, Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. I'm going to be reading our text this morning, which is verses 1 through 11. Give you a chance to get there if you're using your Bible. Hopefully you are, whether it's digital or paper. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that. We also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Hopefully from reading that, you can see why I uh, put the title of the sermon as the benefits of justification. It could be the results of justification, the blessings of justification, but it is Paul's explanation really of what comes after or as part of uh, a right relationship with God. But consider with me 
for uh, a few minutes. You know, there are many people who consider Christianity as no more than a fire escape by which they may be delivered from the torment of hell. I mean, the benefits of Christianity to such people are no more than that they escape the wrath of God, uh, which is coming against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, as we saw in Romans 1.18. Other people view Christianity as an all-out pursuit of knowledge. It's all about creeds and doctrines and prescriptions about how life is supposed to be lived. Such people fill their minds with facts concerning the scriptures. They can tell you what all the big theological words mean, you know, that we've covered already justification and propitiation and redemption and reconciliation and glorification, and they could even go into election and all of those things. They, they know what those words mean, and they could quote you all the doctrinal positions that should be held. They're like the people, I think, that Paul describes in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, where he says that they're filled with knowledge, but they were lacking in love. And I like to think of people like that as kind of like a puffer fish. I don't know if you've ever seen on like, you know, planet Earth, you, they have a, have a scene where there's a puffer fish, and it's kind of small, and you know, another fish is coming towards it, and it balloons itself out. It swells itself out so that it looks much more impressive to other fish. And, and that's a defense mechanism for them as well. Another group of people miss many of the benefits of being a Christian, or they think of Christianity in this way. They compartmentalize their lives into two categories, the spiritual and everything else. Everything else goes in one compartment and everything spiritual goes into another. For them, living, you know, the spiritual life consists of going to church and, and fulfilling their religious obligations, maybe giving to charities and so on. And that part of their life is just absolutely separate from the rest of their life. You know, things like uh, their family life and their vocational life, and their social life, and recreational life, whatever other areas of life that there are, that's separated from the spiritual. And that group of people fail to realize the benefits of being right with God. So in the past uh, few weeks, we've seen Paul do two things in this section of the letter a book of Romans on justification. And in chapter 3, 21 through 31, he clearly explained the doctrine and showed that there's only one way to be right with God, to be justified, and that is through faith in Jesus Christ. And then in chapter 4, he used Abraham as the perfect example of one who had been justified by faith, not by works, not by law, not by religious ordinance, not by being good and obeying God. He believed God, and he was considered as righteous before God. Now, the need of Paul teaching this material 
we've talked about this almost every week, the need of teaching that material and justification uh, is because every person is born into this world a sinner. Sinner three times over, I've told you. They're, they're sinner by nature. Their parents were sinners and they give birth to sinners. They are guilty or sinners by virtue of imputed sin. The sin that Adam committed against God is uh, imputed, reckoned, or considered part of our account. And I know people don't think that's fair. But they think it's fair that Jesus, who never sins, his righteousness could be imputed to us and we're not righteous. I don't know how that logic works. That you think one is unfair and the other is fair. But it's just part of the Bible. Imputed sin and imputed righteousness. And we're, we're sinners because we sin. And, and every parent knows that shortly after their child is born. They may like to describe their children as little angels, but they are fallen angels, if they're angels. They, they are right with Satan in his rebellion. And they'll tell you over and over and over again very loudly that they are in control, not you. You know, as a parent. Yeah, they're sinners. Three times over were that way. And and so, you know, Paul is making it very clear that everyone is condemned because of their sin. They, they can't stand at the judgment and be welcomed into heaven. In fact, they will be, you know, going the other way. They'll be departing into the hell and the lake of fire that was prepared for the devil and his angels. And, and, and so Paul is making it clear that the, way in the, uh, the only way in which a person can be right with God is through faith in Jesus Christ. He is the Savior. We must believe in him. But I think that brings us to a, 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 an important question. I mean, the question that we've been addressing the last three weeks is how, how is a man or how, how does a person get right with God? The question I want us to consider this morning, this morning is what are the benefits of being right with God? What are the blessings of being declared righteous before God. I mean, does the truth that Paul has shared about justification in chapter 3 and chapter 4 stop there? Is, it, is the only significant thing about justification that we are right with God and we are no longer going to be the recipients of his holy wrath? The answer to that is a resounding no, no. That is not all that there is to that. The truth of the matter is that there are a number of benefits or blessings that are ours as a result of being justified. And that's what Paul's doing in Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. His purpose is to reveal some of those benefits. And in doing so, he wants to shape the way that we view Christianity, the way that we view what God has done for us. He would disagree with those who see Christianity as only being a fire escape to, to, you know, be delivered from God's wrath. And he would disagree with those who see Christianity as an intellectual pursuit. You know, uh, uh, he was very intellectual and he had a whole lot of knowledge, but that wasn't what Christianity t was to him. It was a relationship with Christ. And he would disagree with those who compartmentalize their lives and make all of this spiritual and the rest of life, the majority of life, is separated from it. And it's not sufficient. 
Paul understood and desires for us to understand that being justified or being right with God affects the way, the way that we view life and the whole of our life. Not just a moment, not just an event, but the whole of our lives. He will demonstrate this by showing how being justified in the past when we believed, you know, that's in our past, it, it changed our standing, our position before God. And then he's going to go on to show that being justified in the past changes our practice in the present. Our practice in the present. And then lastly, he will focus on how being justified in the past is a guarantee of our future deliverance. So we even see eternal security in these verses, which is great. I love it. I love this passage. So we're going to break it down that way. I don't know if we'll get through it all today or not. If not, we'll just pick it up next week and rejoice some more in it. So we begin with being justified in the past changes our standing or position before God. So this is the blessing of being justified. It emphasizes from the moment that we put our faith in Christ, when we believed in Jesus, when we were declared righteous before God, our whole position before God was changed. And, you know, Paul puts it in this way in 2 Corinthians 5, when he says, you know, the old, the old man, done away, the new man, it's here. He's not talking about practice there. He's talking about position. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The moment we place our faith in Christ, we're new creatures with new desires, new, new practices, yes, but a new position most importantly. Notice how he starts this section with these words, therefore, since we have been justified by faith. So that, therefore, you know the phrase, right? When you see it, therefore, stop and see what it's there for, right? That's a, that's a good reminder that we should always recognize when you see it, therefore, we are to connect it with what has preceded it. And I don't think he's, he's just talking about the previous paragraph or, or even all of chapter 4 regarding Abraham, but I think he's taking it back to 321 where he began to talk and teach about justification. And so he's some, kind of summing it up. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith. He's, he's summing up all that he said from 321 to this point. And he's saying that because we have trusted in Christ, put our faith in Christ, and been declared righteous by God, everything has changed for us. Now, you know, as I was as I was preparing this message, I was I was just thrilled to consider that. I mean, it, it's it's been a long time. I was seventeen, and I'm sixty-seven now. When I put my faith in Christ, everything changed from the moment that I put my faith in Christ. My life has been the Lord's ever since. I thought it was mine before that. It was all about me. Since it's been all about him, and I praise him for that. My life was totally changed because of putting my faith in Christ. Now, three benefits that I see in, the, in these first couple of verses uh, immediately come to mind when it says that we are declared righteous by faith. And the first benefit 
of that. So if you're filling in your insert, you might want to just put this in one word, but it is the phrase in this, we have peace with God. We have peace with God. So if you wanted it one word, it's peace. That's the first benefit, peace. And of course, it's peace with God. And peace is such a, a word that's rich in meaning. It involves not only the absence of warfare, but also a positive positioning, a, a well-being and harmony. Now, you know, this world is filled with war. We, we pray, we've been praying for months, haven't we, about the war in Ukraine. But you could be praying for the war that's in this other place. I mean, it's constant war upon war upon war. And, and we think in terms generally that, you know, when the, the warfare ceases, there's peace. Not necessarily. It's more like there's an absence of active fighting. It's more like what we have in uh, between North and South Korea. There's never a peace accord. It's just the, we agree to stop shooting and killing and, uh, you know, it's that. But the, the animosity and the hatred, and it, that's all there. So, you know, that we have peace, it means more than that we're, we're no longer at war with God. We, we have this positive sense of well-being and harmony with God. And as Paul uses it in this passage, in particular, he, he primarily is not expressing the idea of inner tranquility. It, it, this is an external and and objective thing that he's talking about, not an internal and subjective thing. So to have peace with God refers to being in a relationship with God where we're in the hostility or the enmity caused by sin. It's been removed, and, and then there is a positive sense of well-being and harmony with God. So it's no longer... You know, we're no longer under the wrath of God because he's no longer at war with us. Hallelujah. You know, it, that's what it says in 118. Again, God's wrath is seen as being poured out, poured out against sin and sinners. And, and God is seen at war, at war with sinners. We, we oftentimes think that it's just us who, who is at war with God. It's just us who are enemies of God. He's, he's loving and he just wants the best for us. No, the, the scripture is saying God is at war with us. God is at war with us because of our sin. But once we put our faith in Christ, it's not true. We're no longer at war with God. He's no longer at war with us. Amen to that, yes. And we should notice that Paul says that we have peace with God, not the peace of God. Now, those are similar phrases, right? Very short phrases. Peace with God or peace of God. Why do I point out that, you know, what he's actually saying is peace with God, not the peace of God? They're both, you know, important phrases. There's both the truth to both of them. But is there really such a great difference between them? Whether it's peace with God or, you know, the peace of God. Isn't it really kind of communicating the same idea? No, it's not. There is a significant difference. And, and Paul is not speaking about the subjective feeling of peace that, that comes from a knowing God. But the objective truth. That we're in a state of being where we, God is no longer at war with us. 
and we're no longer at war with them. And there exists a relationship with God that did not and could not exist when we were sinners. You know, the positive feelings of subjective feeling of peace, you can go to Philippians 4, 6, and 7, and there you get the peace of God. You probably know those verses, right? Do not stop worrying, but through everything, and, you know, prayer and thanksgiving, you know, prayer. Let your request be made known to God, and the peace of God shall guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus, right? The peace of God will overcome the anxiety that is within us. We go from one feeling, anxious, fearful, to another feeling, peace of God. Do you get that? We get God's peace. And that is connected to peace with God, but that is an outflowing of our peace with God. We, we can have the peace of God because we are at peace with God. Yeah. So, you know, it, it, it's not unlike uh, Isaiah 48, 22, where it talks about the sinner, and, and that between the sinner and God, there's a state of warfare. Now, he's saying this to Israel, but it, to sinful Israel. There is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. There is no peace for the wicked. I, I don't think Paul or Isaiah was saying that, you know, there are no feelings of peace for the wicked. Uh, In fact, you probably realize this, some wicked people feel perfectly at peace with their wickedness, with their sinfulness. They have no issues because they have rejected the idea that there is a God to whom they'll give an account. So they're perfectly at peace with living however they want if it violates some moral code that, you know, someone trying to force on them, well then, you know, that's okay. I have peace about it. So Paul's not talking about, they are both saying that God is at war with sinners, whether they feel peaceful or not. There is no peace for the wicked. God is at war with sinners. Now some Christians, in fact, may not feel the peace of God in their hearts in the midst of trial or temptation or even their sin. But the fact remains, God is no longer at war with them. Even when they sin, God's not at war war with the, the believer. Why? Because the believer truly isn't a sinner. He's a saint who has fallen into a sin. And there's a difference. They're no longer the enemies of God. And it is true that the Christian should experience a feeling of peace in his or her life, but... Again, that's a feeling or an attitude, isn't it? And, and not their standing before God. And Paul is referring to our standing before holy God and that he no longer is at war with us. Now, let me pause just for a moment and ask you to consider this passage, these verses, and how Paul has made a subtle shift in how he is communicating. In three 21 through 420, it is that. It's out there. It's them. It's, it's, it's not personal. It's not us. He's, you know, he's writing to the church, but he's not putting it in terms of us, we, what is ours. But in this passage, is a total difference. He's talking about us and we. He's talking about what we experience as the church and as individual believers. 
I, I praise the Lord for that change. It just it made the passage come all the more alive to me. So we should not pass over this fact either that this peace with God is found where? It's through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's through our Lord Jesus Christ. This peace is not generated by us seeking God out or trying to reconcile with God. In fact, Paul has said in, in chapter 3 and, and verse 11 that no one seeks God. No, not one. So people can't make peace with God. It's made by God for people. And it's made through Christ Jesus. Have you ever heard, you know, or seen on a program or something where a priest will say to a dying person, you need to make your peace with God? Impossible. Impossible. People can't make peace with God. Peace is made by God through the death of his beloved son for those that he was at war with. Hmm. We must only believe that God made peace for us through the death of his son. And that, you know, that's what Isaiah 53 and verse 5 is talking about. The beautiful passage in Isaiah 53, the suffering servant, right? And in verse 5 it says, but he was, this is the son of God, this is Jesus, you know, in prophecy. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed For our iniquities, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. This is also what Paul was saying in Ephesians 2.14, where it speaks of Christ, saying, For he himself is our peace, who has made us, Jews and Gentiles, both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. And in that passage, it's all about the peace that Jesus made through his sacrificial death. Peace between sinners and God, and peace between people groups who hated each other. It's all about what he did to bring about peace for us. So that's the first benefit of our justification. We are at peace with God. Hallelujah. Yeah, one of these days you're all going to say amen or hallelujah. I think that might wait until we get to heaven. I don't know. I hope not, but uh, yeah. The second benefit, if you want one word for it, it's the word access, but here's where it's at. It's in the next phrase. Through him we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. So the phrase, I think this phrase in essence sums up all the blessings which believers enjoy in this present age. Every blessing that we have as ours right now that are in Christ Jesus in the heavenly places, according to Ephesians 1.3. There's all kinds of blessings there in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, and, and we're already possessors of it. So justification and every other benefit and blessing are received through him and by faith. Through him, he's the medium, and faith is also the medium by where we receive the justification and every benefit that goes with it. The phrase, uh, the grace in which we stand, refers to the state of being in a right relationship with God. 
I mean, it contrasts the state of enmity that we were in when God was at war with us and we were at war with him. But I, I, I do want to point out, you have two verbs in this phrase. We have obtained, that's one verse, access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. So we, two verbs, obtained and stand. And both of these verbs are written in what's called the perfect tense. The perfect tense, which simply means this. It happened in the past, but the results continue. It's not a simple past act. It's happened in the past, but it continues. So we obtained something when we believed, right? When we put our faith in Christ. And we stand in something when we believed. We start standing in it, and we continue to stand in it. So both of these things are what we enjoy continually because of what happened in the past. So what has been obtained through Christ's sacrifice will remain the believer's possession forever. And those who have placed their faith in Christ, uh, in Jesus, will forever, ever stand in the grace of God. That's a good place to stand. The only other option is to stand in the wrath of God. You're either in the grace of God or you're in the wrath of God. Now, another element of this second benefit, again, focuses in on this word access. If some of your translations have introduction uh, and some have access, maybe there's another translation uh, or version of that, but I'm not sure. The point is, through Christ that we are able to enter into the presence of God, having access, access to him at all times. Wow. What Paul is saying here is that, you know, this would be unthinkable to the Jews that are listening to him. It would be unthinkable to them. Why? Because in the Old Testament, access to God's presence was restricted. (laughs) it it was withheld from the people. Only the high priest could go into the presence of God, which was in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle and then later in the, the temple. And he could only go in there once a year on the Day of Atonement when a sacrifice was made and he would go in and apply blood to the mercy seat to atone for the sins of Israel. So this idea would have been totally foreign to him. They, 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 they would have balked at this. Jesus has made access for everyone, but that's exactly what Paul is saying. Jesus changed everything, everything for those who have faith in him. When he was hanging on the cross, and the veil in the temple that separated the holy place from the holy of holies was ripped in two at one point from top to bottom, demonstrating that it was a supernatural thing that happened. It was about a four-inch thick curtain, and it wouldn't be ripped just by grabbing it and pulling it. It was God tearing that curtain, saying symbolically the way into the presence of God is open now for everyone. Now, how do I know that? Well, because Hebrews... Chapter 10 gives a commentary on it. I, I love how the Bible gives commentary on the Bible. Hebrews 10, 19, and 20 says this, Therefore, brothers, since we have 
confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. So what is that telling us? Is when he died, when he suffered, when he did what we remembered just minutes ago, he opened the way of access to everyone who puts their faith in him. No, no one can gain access to the presence of God on their own. Only through the Son of God do we have an introduction and continual access. Now, there is a story that I read a long time ago. It's a story of a man who was desperately seeking to uh, have a talk with the President of the United States to voice his views on some of the policies of the president. And this isn't any current president. I think it's, uh, it, as I read it, it, it is kind of in the past, maybe back in the time of Lincoln or something like that. <clears throat> but the story goes on to say that the man uh, was, you know, told, <laughs> no, you don't get in to see the president of the United States. And he determined that he was just hanging around the White House until he could gain access to the president. And he's there for days. And one day, he, he's out on the steps, and, and this little boy comes out and, and starts playing right around him. And he's a little irritated by you know, the, the kid. He's making a lot of noise and all of that. But at some point, the, the boy asked him, so what are, what are you here for? And the man you know, kind of thought, well, get away from me, boy. Quit bothering me. But yeah, he decided he would answer the question. He says, well, I want to see the president and voice some of my opinions about his policies. And the, and the boy said to him, I can get you in. <laughs> and the guy thought, yeah, right. Get away from me, boy. Stop bothering me. But he thought again, he thought, well, I'll just play along with the boy. And, and, uh, and so he, you know, followed the boy. They went up the steps and into the White House and and they walked down several uh, hallways, and, and finally they came to the door of the president's office, and the little boy put his hand on the knob, and the, the man's expecting that the people right there would stop him. He's like, what are you doing? But no one said a thing, and the boy turned the knob, opened the door, and entered with the man following him. And then the, the little boy said this, Daddy? This man has something he would like to say to you. And the, it was the president's son, Daddy. This man has something he'd like to say to you. And that is something like the picture that Paul is painting for us. We have access. We have an introduction and access uh, to the God of this world. But this access is only possible through the Son of God through the Son of God. 1 Peter 3.18 says it as well. For Christ also suffered for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. That's introduction and access, isn't it? The third benefit of our justification is that we have a reason to rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So if you want the one word, it's the word hope. I mean, rejoice is part of that too, but it's hope that we have. Now, last week we spoke about the hope the believer has and how it differs from the hope of those who 
do not know God. Human hope is full of disappointment, and the reason is because it relies on other people to fulfill what the hope is about. But divine hope, our hope in God is not going to be disappointed. It is certain. And the reason is because it only requires God to do what God has promised to do. Our hope is in God. Our hope is in, he says, in the glory of God. We will share. By the way, do you get this way of saying we'll share in the glory of God? Wow. We will share in the glory of God. Man. But what is that? What is the glory of God? We talked about it way back in chapter 3, verse 23, for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. But put simply, it is what God is in the perfection of his attributes. The glory of God is his perfection in his attributes that we, of course, fall short of. So the great hope of the believer is that because Christ lives, we have the future expectation of resurrection, right? Of resurrection. And at the resurrection, we will be changed. This body of humiliation, and the older we get, the more we realize it is a body of humiliation. It's decaying, it's degenerating. We say, ow, a whole lot more. We go to the doctor a whole lot more. We have more injuries that seem like they never heal. This body of humiliation that is so easily tempted and so easily struggling with faith and and all of that, this body of humiliation will be changed into a like body of his glory. That's what Philippians chapter 3 and verse 21 says. So right now, Right now, we are the children of God. Amen? Amen. Right now. It's not something in the future. Right now, we are the children of God. But in this present time, we continue to fall short of his glory. But when Jesus returns, (laughs) we will be like him, for we shall see him as he is. 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 3 teaches. What a day that will be. What a day that will be. The old hymn says it well. What a day that will be when my Jesus I, will, I shall see. I'll look upon his face, the one who saved me by his grace. When he takes me by the hand and leads me through the promised land. What a day, glorious day that will be. No, no more burdens to bear. No more sickness and no more pain. No more parting over there. But forever I will be with the one who died for me. What a day. Glorious day that will be. Yeah, amen. We will share in the glory of God. We have that hope. That hope that is a certainty for us, right? We stand in his grace. We have peace with God. We have access to God. And we have hope in God. Those are benefits that come out of being right with God. Well, that's just a whole lot to rejoice in. And we've just, you know, scratched the surface. I know, it's 1151. We're going to stop there. We'll pick up there next week. Hopefully that doesn't create problems with the food, Greg, but We'll just hang out and enjoy each other's company and talk about the benefits of justification. Are you justified? Are you right with God? Are these things true of you? 
You know that you are at peace with God, and, and by the way, that helps give you the peace of God. Are, are, are you glad that you have access to God, that you can go to him? We read it in Hebrews 4, or Brad did earlier, that we come with boldness or confidence into the throne room of God to receive grace and mercy. Do you, do you go to him often? Jesus said we should. Jesus made the way open for us to do so. Paul taught it. Peter taught it. All the writers of the New Testament taught this wonderful truth that we have access. Are you taking advantage of the access that we have? Hmm, we should. And then lastly, are you celebrating the hope of the glory of God? Are you celebrating that? Wow. I... Again, as, as you know, I, I, don't, I don't watch news, uh, and I don't really read a lot of news, but I can see what's going on in the world, and I can read headlines, and it's all, it seems pretty bad. I don't know, it seems pretty bad out there, doesn't it? I hope that Jesus will come soon and, and put it all right. But until he does, let's be faithful to share this message that people can be at peace with God. They can have access to God and they can have hope in the Lord Jesus Christ because of his sacrificial death. That is our great task, isn't it? It is the great commission. So let's honor him in being obedient. Lord, we are thankful for your word, thankful for the encouragement that it gives us. We're thankful for the benefits that we have in Christ because of what he did on our behalf, giving himself as a sacrifice that we could be forgiven and, and be welcomed into your family and be eternally secure in you. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you also for the food we're going to eat. We ask that as we share it, we'll just consider that another benefit of justification. And I don't mean the food itself, but rather the fellowship that we have because of your justification. But we thank you for the food as well. So we give thanks for all of it. In Jesus' great name, amen.